This podcast is brought to you by David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts. At UCC, they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding. David likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget. UCC can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for. Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or for many other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pins to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.NET. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.NET. Hey, you won't be disappointed. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, we want to make you aware of the next month's worth of episodes and this week's presenting sponsors. For the next few episodes, you will hear interviews with author of The Preaching in the Era of Trump, Wes Allen, this summer's General Assembly keynote speaker, Jerusha Neal, and Tish Warren Harrison, author of The Liturgy of the Ordinary. This episode is presented to you by the 2018 Summer Conference of Baptist Peace Fellowship of North America, Bautista por la Paz. The annual conference of BPFNA, Bautista por la Paz, is for everyone who longs for the spirituality, inspiration, skills, knowledge, and community to support a life of peace rooted in justice. Peacemakers from around the world will gain inspiration, training, resources, and tools to empower their work for social justice. Join BPFNA this summer from July 2nd through the 7th on the campus of Cuca College of Cuca Park, New York. For a powerful week focused on decentering power and privilege as we seek to become the chosen peculiar people of God. If you're interested in creating a change, both within yourself or in the world around you, save these dates and join the welcoming community of peacemakers for a life-changing experience. Register for the full week by May 1st and receive $50 off the registration cost for each person you are registering. Visit bpfna.org backslash gather for more information and to register. Call 704-521-6051 or email bpfna at bpfna.org with any questions. This conversation with Drew Hart is sponsored to you by Launch Mission Creative. Former Cooperative Baptist Fellowship graphic design specialist Travis Peterson is an award-winning designer and dedicates his work to helping churches, ministries, and missional organizations. Travis worked with CBF during their rebranding phase and helped CBF win multiple awards for the design CBF public relation material, advertising, the CBF guidebook, fellowship magazine, and much more. As a former youth minister and graphic design missionary and now owner of Launch Mission Creative, Travis shares Matthew 5.16. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. 
Launch Mission Creative will help your church, ministry, and missional organization shine your light a little brighter through branding identity in the form of logo, business cards, and letterheads, printed material like weekly church bulletins, brochures, annual reports, and even signage, or even a new website or social media campaign. Best of all, he'll work within your budget. Contact Travis today at www.launchmissioncreative.com or search for Launch Mission Creative on Facebook. Launch Mission Creative. We serve people who serve people. Our guest for this week's podcast is Drew Hart, an author, activist, and professor. Drew is a graduate of Messiah College, receiving an MDiv from Biblical Theological Seminary, and he earned a PhD from Lutheran Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Uh, Drew teaches at Messiah College in the Bible and Religion Department. Um, welcome, Drew. Thank you, Andy. Glad to be in conversation with you. Now, I know you spent some time in Philadelphia with school. Um, are y'all are y'all off the high yet of winning the Super Bowl? Um, I don't know if Philly will ever get off the high of winning the Super Bowl. Um, that, that was a game changer for the city. So I wasn't even in town. You know, I'm in Harrisburg now. Um, and I felt the reverberations, you know, two hours away. So yeah, it's, it's exciting times. Yeah, I, you know, I always love the state of Pennsylvania when it comes to uh, to the National Football League because, you know, of course the Steelers have this, you know, uh, historic uh, franchise that's won, you know, multiple Super Bowls, and then you've got Philadelphia, which is probably one of the most boisterous, faithful, sta- you know, fan bases in all of sports but yet they didn't have much to brag on, you know? So now finally, you know, that that one almost overcomes all the rest of them. But, you know, the other funny thing too about uh, folks in Philadelphia is like, you know, y'all did just win the national title in basketball. So it's not like you're, you know, running on a a low of sports uh, championships here as of late, but uh, we're excited. We've got a lot of of, uh, Philly fans in our area and one of our, um, our church starters in Philadelphia, and he's just, he's loving it. Uh, so he, he can't get off the high of it yet. Yeah, no, it's exciting. We love our sports. Um, and, and I do think, I mean, it's a strange thing because we like to be the underdogs, I think, going in. So I don't know if this will take some of our bite, you know, out of our bark. Um, but, um, but yeah, we like to be underdogs. And so I think that has given us some character in, in going in, uh, challenging other teams. So we'll see what happens in the future. What is it? I do think, and not to keep talking about sports, it is an identity crisis, I think, for a lot of teams. If you think about um, the Boston Red Sox and uh, the Chicago Cubs, you know, they they lived almost in this persona of the lovable losers. You know, they didn't, you know, they didn't win anything. They could never put it together. And then all of a sudden, oh, y'all are like overwhelming champions. You, you have an identity crisis and you have to become something different. So hopefully that happens with Philadelphia as well. Um, yeah, well, anyways. Absolutely. Um, so, um, obviously, we're talking a little bit about your uh, credentials coming into it, but uh, tell us a little bit more about you. Yeah, so I grew up, um, technically, I grew up in Norristown, which is technically, it's an urban community, but it's technically um, not a part of Philly proper. Um, it's its own little thing, but it's a part of the Philly ecosystem, if you want to call it that. Um, community was like a third black, third Latino, third white, just a kind of you know, poor and working class community for the most part, but on the edges of it, more suburban communities as well. Um, And so that was, you know, the school district that I was raised in initially and got to, you know, live and move in my neighborhood in that space. Um, And in some ways you could say that was pretty formative for me, that that was was my norm to be interacting 
with a lot of different folks um, in the neighborhood, in my schools, um, on the block. Um, and then, let's see, so I, my family, my dad actually became a pastor in the 90s. And um, we actually had a fire when I was in ninth grade and we ended up moving the beginning of 10th grade to more of a suburban white community outside of Philly. Um, and it was a big 3,000, you know, student body, um, high school, 10th through 12th grade, it was like a thousand kids per grade. Um, and that was just a big shock and change for me, but I navigated that space. After that, I went off to Messiah College. I was a biblical studies major there um, and learned a lot of things while I was in college. Uh, that was a, kind of a, a growing time for me, both academically, but also just um, learning about how racialized the society really is and how even the church is really racialized. I think you bring a lot of that baggage with them. I saw all the baggage being brought to this Christian campus um, and had to deal with some of that stuff, um, uh, the brunt of it. Um, after that, I uh, immediately got hired as a youth pastor um, in Harrisburg, which is the city and it's the capital of Pennsylvania, right outside of about 15, 20 minutes from Messiah College. Um, and so I was a youth pastor there at a multiracial church, working with young people and also doing uh, working for an after school program in the city for middle school boys that particularly the school um, was targeting young folks who were coming from under resourced neighborhoods. And so it was like 99% students of color, um, middle school boys. Um, and yeah, that was a really good experience, both the youth pastoring and working for the after school program in Allison Hill in Harrisburg. And then after that, I moved back to Philly, um, got married, moved back to Philly, started my MDiv, did an MDiv program with the urban concentration, and uh, which was really neat because I got to, um, for the first time, I did an MDiv program where the majority of students were black and from the city. And so doing theological education in that space was a kind of a unique moment that I think few get the opportunity to have. Um, did that, I was pastoring at the same time, and my professors, while I was doing all that, encouraged me to consider um, continuing on to do a PhD, which was never on my radar or within the imagination of possibilities at the time. Um, I was really thinking about ministry, uh, but I, I found myself asking and wrestling with hard theological questions, and they saw that in me, and so I, I ended up pursuing that and studied at Philadelphia, um, Lutheran Theological Seminary of Philadelphia. Um, it's an old historic seminary in Philadelphia. And I did a PhD there looking at uh, white supremacy in Western Christendom and some other stuff. And so, um, yeah, finished, what was that, 2016. I, um, by that point, I had my second child already. Um, and we got, um, offered a position at Messiah College. So I ended up coming back, which was also unexpected, and ended up moving back into Harrisburg and um, teaching now at my alma mater at Messiah. So I'm in, currently at now my second year of teaching at Messiah, and I have three boys, <laughs> um, happily married, um, grinding both in the classroom, but also doing a lot of work in our local community, working with some local activists and organizers, and as well as doing a lot of traveling nationally, speaking at churches, conferences, 
um, doing a lot of anti-racism work, other theological work with the church, which is really my passion. I see myself as a church theologian more than anything else. Um, yeah. Well, it's it's good to know you didn't burn any bridges at Messiah College because I was just sitting here thinking while you were talking about returning back to your alma mater, there is an, yeah. enough of the professor base that was at Campbell University that's still there that would make it so that I could never come back on staff there. They just remember undergraduate Andy and that would never happen. So it's good to know that you were a studious and upstanding student at, at Messiah College so much so that they brought you back. Um, you know, at, uh, reading. Yeah, you know, <laughs> well, I'm just going to say, I think I, I, I went under the radar enough while I was on campus, at least as far as faculty and stuff. And then, so most people I think think of me more as, my after campus life, you know, because um, I stayed in contact with the school and did some work with them um, periodically over the past 10, 12 years. So gratefully, I think I was under the radar enough that, you know, none of that stuff will haunt me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, if only I had someone so wise to guide me in my younger years. But uh, so I've, I've been reading over your PhD work um, in preparation uh, for our conversation and it's fascinating. Yeah. So the premise, the premise was considering how Christian discipleship as framed by black uh, theologies and contemporary Anabaptists uh, gesture the Western church towards untangling the forces of white supremacy and the inertia of Western Christendom, which has plagued itself with a witness of society for way too long. It's, man, it's, it's fascinating work. So what yeah. made you go that route uh, with with your dissertation? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, for me, like some people struggle to find a really, you know, creative topic. You got to find something unique. For me, it was easy because I had gone on this personal journey in which I was raised in the Black church, um, came to Messiah, was first introduced to Anabaptism for the very first time at Messiah, and then was hired at a multiracial Anabaptist congregation. Um, had to make sense of that in Harrisburg, moved back to Philly. And even when I was back in the Black church, I started connecting with all these Anabaptists. And in, in Philly, it's not like your, your stereotype of Anabaptists. I'm talking about like second, third generation Black Mennonites and Latino Mennonites. There's the largest Anabaptist congregation is a Asian, it's an Indonesian Mennonite congregation in South Philly. Um, and they have um, all the Anabaptists all together throughout the city. There's lots of them actually meet monthly um, for a gathering called Kingdom Builders, where you have all these diverse faces and folks um, sitting around the table. And so this kind of Anabaptism was contagious because I felt like it was scratching and wrestling with the issues that actually impacted our communities and neighborhoods. So asking different kinds of questions with Anabaptism. So for me, I went through this journey of um, being shaped by these two traditions and kind of beginning to identify with both at the same time. And so when it became, when it came time to do my dissertation, it was just me working out my own stuff. Here's these two uh, traditions. I know that there's something there um, and let me figure out how to articulate that best. And so I went in with the idea that, look, at the minimum, we can see that these two traditions were both born on the underside of, of supposedly Christianized societies, right? Anabaptism in Europe in the 1600s, as they were devastatingly per persecuted, killed, tortured, drowned, burned at the stake, displaced, right, all that stuff. And at the same time, they're wrestling with 
the Jesus that is being taught in that society that merged church and social order together and saying, this doesn't work. Um, and they were willing to nonviolently follow this Jesus in resistance and create counter communities. And then in the, on the black church side, right, African-American Christian history, you can think about um, a Christi Christianity born by Christians who are practicing the enslavement of African people and telling them that this was God's ordained order. And yet, despite that message, they, they heard a message of a liberating Jesus, a co-sufferer, a friend in hard times that joined them in their struggle. And, um, and so I knew that there was something there to be explored, that both of these traditions, I call it salvaging um, Western Christianity from itself. Um, and so I think that there was something there, a positive conversation that could be had between the two, um, the further that I dug into their history and theological thought. You wrote um, in in a book, and we'll get to the book conversation in just a little bit, but um, you wrote, despite its common usage, race is not a natural biological category for human beings. Though physical features certainly create boundaries of difference, the language of race obscures rather than clarifies human similarities and differences. It is smoke and mirrors. Instead of being a biological fact, race is a social construct. Take us a little deeper there. Yeah, I mean, we take it so for granted that race, it's, it's a part of our normal life. It's a part of our, the way that we think and see others. Um, and we don't recognize how strange it is, how weird it is. I often talk to, to white congregations and I'll ask them, like, do you understand that there was a time when Europeans didn't consider themselves white, right? They might have thought of themselves as Irish or German or Italian or whatever, but and they certainly wouldn't have thought of themselves as white. So why and how did all these European groups um, who often were fighting one another, didn't see themselves as one people, all of a sudden get uh, submerged into this category white? Um, how, did we, how did the whole entire world get carved up into all these categories that supposedly imagine that these are helpful categories in discerning and differentiating people groups? And one of the best ways to see how arbitrary and random it is, is to think about um, in the black community, how uh, the one drop rule kind of created the idea of blackness. And so basically, because there was this obsession with purity and, and in terms of white community, um, they didn't want anything to taint what it meant to be white. And so to be black meant that you had, as long as you had at least one bit of you know African ancestry, you were considered black. Um, and so throughout, Black, you know, history in this country, um, you can see that people who are considered black come from a whole range of perspectives, skin tones, and in fact, some folks technically, you could argue, have more European um, ancestry than African ancestry. But in our framework, they're black, um, and that just shows again, it's an arbitrary category that were created as social constructions, and basically, they were these categories and boundaries were created so for the purpose of power, for social power, for political power, for arranging and organizing our society. And so, so much of our society still on a wide scale is organized around this idea of race, but because we've normalized it and we think that it's natural, uh, we don't see how strange our societies are. And so I think um, there's a lot of work for us to even just to begin to see what's happening around us, nonetheless, to think about um, what work it's causing in our lives. 
obviously it's um it can be difficult for me to to speak into that history um considering that you know i am white i am a person um who came from privilege and um probably received a lot of the benefits that i have in life as a result of um my skin color and, and where I've, I've come from um you know I, but at, at the same time i see that um there is an opening and shift in our culture right now um, for for race not to be um, a social category, for race not to be um, this thing that divide us, but uh, for for people to embrace um, true multiculturalism and individuality and not allow that to be something that deters someone or prevents someone from advancing in, in their calling in life. Um, but but where do you think we begin with all that? Or, or how do we take um, the strides we've made as a society, despite the fact some of the things that have happened in the last year that really have just under, uh, uncovered the fact that, no, there's still systematic racism in this world. It's still very real. But how do we push forward uh, through this? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the path forward is the hard, ugly path. Um, it's the path of a lot of work. Um, and when I, I say that because I think there's, there's sometimes two options when we begin to realize how racialized our society is and how racialized even our own lives are. Um, one path is, is to kind of move towards denial um, and kind of make a quick fix, which is put a Band-Aid on it and say, oh, yeah, um, you know, I'm colorblind now. I don't see color, right? That's kind of a quick move that a lot of people want to make in response to our racial history is, well, if race has shaped how we see people, well, then I will commit myself to being colorblind. Um, and, and my concern with that is, number one, I think it can be almost naive and dishonest about um, how, how socialization actually works. Um, and so claiming colorblindness often some, sometimes can be a way of trying to claim innocence from all the stuff that's going on without really doing the careful self-examination work of how our actual lives are embedded deeply into the systems and the currents of our society today. Um, so I often you know, encourage people, um, the goal isn't necessarily colorblindness, right? On one hand, we can see diversity and difference and, and tones and colors. And, and we can even celebrate and recognize different histories and people groups that exist. Um, and we don't need to, you know, um, ignore um, human difference in society. Um, but we do want to actually begin to see and view racism. And what I mean by that is not just the individual stuff, but to see how our society is structured so that we can make more faithful decisions in response to it. So the harder path is, is wrestling with the history of how did we get to where we are and then thinking about what is a faithful way forward. Um, and it, that it, there's no clean path, that this took 400 years uh, of making the society that we live in today. And so it's gonna take centuries of work of communities being faithful, intention, being intentional about how they live life and the practices that they engage in that are going to help us move in a better direction. And so I think um, on one hand, the church, you know, has, has often been, even though we haven't admitted it, the, the center site from which modern racism has flowed out of Western Christianity. But I think it's also, if we took Jesus seriously, 
it can easily be the site from which transformation happens in our societies as well. And so I, I think that a starting point is churches um, confessing where we've been, admitting all those things, repenting from them and, and, and committing to a journey forward that, you know, of repentance that, that decides it's gonna be a part of the transformation, um, a part of the renewal, a part of the healing, part of the justice in the world and not um, all the ongoing perpetuation of racism that continues to plague our society. We need to pause to tell you about one of our presenting sponsors, Campbell University Divinity School. Committed to Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused theological education and to commit to helping you answer your call with a variety of Master of Divinity and Doctoral level programs. Curious about what Campbell's mission looks like in action? You should meet Cindy Bolden, who earned both an MDiv and DMIN from Campbell Divinity. A self-described love activist, Cindy embraced the call to love her neighbors in Glenwood South and downtown Raleigh. Armed with chocolates and hugs and good books, Cindy fosters community among local shoppers, young professionals, empty nesters, and the homeless. She helped launch A Place at a Table, Raleigh's first pay-what-you-can cafe, and she helped create Glenwood Gathering, a monthly meeting that makes neighbors out of strangers. Campbell Divinity School helped Cindy explore her call, and she discovered what a community minister in Glenwood South was her parish. Now, that's Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused. How might Campbell help you discover or shop in your call? To get a taste of the Campbell experience and a taste of local flavors of Greenville, North Carolina, you are invited to attend the next Fed Talk. That's Theological Education Talk at Oakmont Baptist Church on April 22nd. You'll enjoy engaging lectures from Professor Barry Jones, Lydia Hoyle, and Caleb Oladipo, along with delicious food from local favorites. Best of all, you'll experience the legendary Campbell Divinity School community for yourself. For more information about Fed Talks or to subscribe to the upcoming issue of Campbell Divinity School magazine that features Cindy, the love activist, visit divinity.campbell.edu. Well, I, th- I think you hit on something that really um, gosh, awakens my soul, uh, that we have, to, uh, we have to own up to all of this. And I think that's so difficult. Um, in a day and age of rightness, um, you know, we always have to be right. Someone else always has to be wrong. There's always someone else to blame. Um, and, 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 and even for the church these days, you, you wrote, and it's always weird to quote somebody that you're talking to, um, but you, you wrote uh, some powerful words. You said, white is a pseudo-scientific and socially construct category used to centralize power among a certain portion of humanity and at the direct harm and cost of people of color, especially Native Americans, black lives in America. And it is not a static category. Whiteness subtly shifts and changes over time as necessary. You know, so how, how, do, how do we, um, and not to, not to play into kind of the matrix motif here of those of us that have come awake, you know, awoken to our, our uh, privilege, how do we how do we help other people see this? How do we help other people own this? How do we own this together as, as you, as you said? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's hard work. Um, and I, w- sometimes I, I wish I like, I had this one method, um, but, but I think there's a, a series of ways that we can do it. One is, I mean, we, there's serious historical amnesia that operates within a lot of communities. I was just at a, um, I gave a, I was in Kansas, recently and I was giving a talk and I was talking to this um, young white woman who was a college student and in my conversation I could tell like it seemed like she had never had a serious conversation on racism before 
she was open, but she was just like kind of clueless, both about our history as well as ongoing things that are happening in our society today. And um, there was an older white woman who was there at the table who was, she seemed horrified and shocked. But I wasn't as shocked as her, but it was saddening. Um, but I think like that ignorance and lack of awareness isn't accidental. It's like designed, like communities create bubbles, right? In which they don't have to see the suffering of others, in which they never engage other ideas, in which our schools and the education system doesn't tell a truthful story about where we've come from. And so um, some of the work that we've got to do is, is, a, is a telling a more truthful story, um, be more honest about the history and the ongoing uh, experiences that are even happening even today. And so I think that, that that's one of the things that, that needs to happen is just people have no, I, I teach a course at Messiah. I get one course that's outside of my department. It's a first year seminar and it looks at like black experience from slavery up to the present. And as this, as unsettling as, the, as my students going and reading carefully through um, slavery and what actually that actually looked like, um, what is more unsettling for them is the 20th century. It's a, the history that's closer that they thought they knew. They thought it was all about um, water fountain and sitting on the back of the bus. And they didn't realize it was a way in which the whole entire society was organized um, in, around white supremacy and white terrorism. And so, so I think for folks to, to really repent and lament where we've come, there's got to be that history. I also think that um, people experiencing, getting some, having unsettling experiences can be really powerful. Uh, I've seen, you know, um, folks go on like civil rights bus tours, like really good ones that like help you immerse in like what happened. I've seen people come back like new people. <laughs> um, just from that experience of getting traveling throughout the South, hearing perspectives from folks who are still living, who were involved in the movement, watching the documentary, just immersing themselves deeply in a short period of time, deeply in what was going on and seeing these places, putting their feet on the ground of where it took place, and that and seeing that change people. And I've and also we've lots of people have seen you know people go on trips and things like that where they have a new experience and that can change you in really lasting ways. So I think unsettling experiences can also be powerful. But those kind of things, I think, can create the conditions in which, you know, true lament is possible. And not, and when I say lament, I don't mean just the kind of ongoing white guilt, right? Or just feeling bad about being white. That's not really helpful, I think. But lament about what we've done, where we've been, owning it, right? Taking that to God. Um, and then after that, committing to new life, right? That's possible in God. And I think that that is the kind of posture um, that we want to see folks take, um, that there is a transformative process that's available to us. Well, I, I think there's a certain um, privilege that comes through people's expectation of change. Um, you know, as I have conversations, as I pastor a local congregation, as we help people wrestle around these issues. Um, you know, people, people uh, of privilege expect, okay, I've, I've got it. Okay. Everybody else should get on board with it. Let's, let's move on. Or, you know, I've, I've understood this. It's okay. You know, we're okay now. And so, you know, how do we speak into this? This takes time and this is generational 
And we have to do the good work um, every single day of bringing transformation to our culture, bringing transformation to the church around this, um, and, and not expecting people to be okay with just a simple understanding, but to see, to see radical change around us. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I think that's, that's huge. Right. And I, and I, well, for one, I, I think some of it is some of the quick response is precisely because people don't actually understand the depth of the problem. Honestly, um, uh, we see race oftentimes as like these incidental moments around us rather than a way that has organized our society, has shaped how we see others, has socialized us and our own identities and how we live life in the world, right? Our culture and preferences and everything, our social network, social ex experiences, our opportunities in the world. All of those things are deeply, they're not only based on race, but they're deeply um, uh, shaped by race, influenced by race. And so there is nothing in American society that is outside of that realm. And I think when we begin to see the depth of how much, how strange race has shaped our logics and our ways of being in the world, um, then we'll realize this isn't any quick fix. Um, and this is going to take um, faithful discipleship, right, on the long road. Um, and it's going to take not being lone rangers in that either, that you can only do this in community with others. Um, that's not even possible to do on your own. And so it's going gonna, it's gonna to be intergenerational work that we're going to have to do. And again, if we have a better sense of the history and the depth of what has gone on and how that has shaped our lives, then we begin to realize um, the serious kind of thorough holistic transformation that we need to go through. Um, and for that, again, yeah, it's hard work. Um, and I do think uh, on the other end of that is, um, I do think that people, let's say as an individual has gone on a journey, um, then sometimes we want other people to catch up immediately to where we are and not realize that we were on a journey. We didn't get there immediately. Um, there were multiple things that happened in our lives, right? That took us to where we were. And so I think that we also have to have um, grace to allow people to be on a journey. Now, and I say that not to say, that doesn't mean let people just be whatever they think is fine. I don't believe that. I think we, we um, speak truthfully to folks. Um, sometimes you gotta raise the heat a little bit in our relationships. And it, sometimes it's a little tense and uncomfortable at times. I think that's all okay. But we also have to have grace and journey with people and not give up on people right away just because they're not where we are. Because, um, I mean, the reality is that we're all multidimensional people. There are probably ways in which that same person is farther along than something else, right? <laughs> um, and so I think that we've got to have that kind of spirit of, of grace to realize that we're all on a journey. Uh, and we can certainly be frustrated with folks, be disappointed with folks. Um, maybe even sometimes angry, right? If someone does something really harmful to others. But I think that we also gotta be committed to being people that, um, that because we've been given grace, we can also extend that to others as well in the journey. Mm. I think there's something to be said um, about being, um, about uh, trying to prevent yourself from being apathetic and different about, uh, change not taking place at a more rapid pace. Um, you know, so not settling into being okay with now, but being okay with now, but always looking to um, a greater reality that's ahead. Um, and I think as, as I read your book, um, that's, 
that's really one of my major takeaways. Um, so, you know, it's been two years you released uh, this book, Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Sees Racism. Um, and I wonder, you know, in these two years that this book has been out, what's been some of the, the progress you've seen? What's been some of the stories you've heard in response to your work? Yeah, no, I mean, I've, it's actually been really encouraging for me to be able to kind of journey with congregations, particularly since the book coming out. I had already been doing a fair number of anti-racism work with churches, kind of thinking about race theologically as a Christian and thinking, what difference does Jesus make? And in so many ways, you could say the book flew out of that work, came out of that work that I was already doing. But what I've been able to see now is um, congregations for the very first time wrestling deeply with race and racism and thinking about how does that shape them? Um, how does that impact how they do worship, how they gather, the preaching and teaching, how they raise their children, the kind of daily decisions that they make, right, um, on behalf of their community. So I, that's been exciting. And I, I guess I say it's been exciting, particularly because I know a lot of folks don't get to see that side of what's happening in the world. Um, sometimes all we hear, I don't know, in certain circles that I move in, they feel like, oh, you know, you just hear people, oh, well, white evangelicals, 81% voted for Trump, and they haven't changed a bit, and they don't care about what's happening, and, uh, and all this stuff. And there's a very kind of uh, uh, pessimistic, kind of dark kind of look to what's happening in the world. And I'm not dismissing any of those things as real forces in the world also. They are. Um, but that's not the only story. That's not the only narrative that's playing out and unfolding um, right now in our, in our society. There are lots of folks who, for the very first time, are seeking to be faithful and to repent of the racism and thinking about it, doing preaching. I mean, there's been lots of churches that have done preaching series for a whole entire year, theme like on anti-racism and did studies on my book, group studies and Sunday school classes and all that, and then would have me come in. And so I got to see the process, right, that they had gone through. And so for me... Um, and sometimes it's on the other end. I'm coming in at the very beginning of it, and then that unfolds afterwards. But either way, to get to see um, that there are congregations really struggling and doing hard work together, journeying, discussing, seeking God, trying to you know think about how Christian discipleship, how the way of Jesus um, um, speaks into the racialized society that we live in today, and what a faithful witness would look like if they took Jesus seriously. And so yeah, it's exciting. Um, to to get to see that that narrative unfold, which a lot of people do not get to see. Mm. You know, it, your book is grounded in the way of Jesus, and you spoke about Jesus' ministry and parables, and the way Jesus spoke about the kingdom. And one of the one of the aspects that stuck out to me the most was um, when you make the argument that, especially in America, um, we have not taken. Jesus teaching an invitation into the kingdom as serious as we should, and that we in and more or less have aligned our lives with the kingdom of america and um, there's something you said you said uh, the church will sell all the ugliness of racialized hierarchy, sexist patriarchy, and selfish classism when we find that there is true treasure in the field. Um, talk to me a little bit more about that. Yeah, no, I mean, we, we, we have yet to reckon with how much we've bought into 
the idea that America is God's new social order, right? Um, and we've made sacred all its, you know, American creeds. We, we've made democracy and capitalism, um, the creeds, the, we've, we've seen them as sacred creeds, divine, divinely ordered creeds that are bringing in the new order of God. And because of that, uh, we, we fail to recognize the new thing that God has done in Jesus Christ and the reign that God has, that Jesus has instituted. And, and so I think, um, you know, the way of Jesus is so radical. He was a poor, uh, poor Palestinian Jew, right, living under Roman occupation. Um, and so you got to take that into consideration, the context for everything that he says is in that historical and social context. Um, and so when he preaches the kingdom, these are, that's a revolutionary idea. That alone can get you killed. That's why in Luke, he's, he's, threat, he's uh, accused of, you know, basically sedition and starting an uprising, right? Because the very ideas, even if he wasn't starting a violent revolution, these are very revolutionary ideas. And it wasn't just for some other worlds. Jesus taught his disciples to pray that, you know, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, right? This is an earthly on the ground movement that God has started in which the least, the last, and lost are being centralized in our society, right? Those on the margins and edges and cracks of society are being brought in. Um, those who were once on the margins are now on the main stage, right, for God and what God is doing in the world. And so um, this new thing, we have, not, or we have not yet reckoned with the new thing God has done in Jesus Christ and the reign of God, what that actually means for our lives and how we, how we might somehow, as the church speaks, make the reign of God visible in our society. But so long as our first instinct is to, to make the old social order sacred, um, we will fail to live into the kingdom of God as God desires for us today. And that has huge implications in terms of our willingness to critique our society and its racist history. Nobody wants to because we want to tell a narrative of innocence and God's chosen nation and all those things um, that refuse to reckon with God's reign on earth. I, for one, um, I buy into the narrative that Jesus was an insurrectionist, that uh, Jesus was a rebel. And when you, when you read the social and political implications of the Gospels, Jesus is constantly clashing against all of those things. Um, when it came to the religious system, when it came to the economy, when it came to foreign powers, when it came to uh, the dominance of others when it came to the subjugation of so-called sinners. Uh, you know, so I cannot help but to get on board to see that we, we too are called to be insurrectionists, you know, obviously not in a violent nature, but um, to disrupt the social order. And, right. and, and currently the social order is that whiteness um, and has been whiteness is uh, dominant. And so I wonder what it would look like if um, there was an underground movement of the church in America uh, for people to begin to, to buy into that invitation of Jesus, uh, that through uh, the radical way of love and grace and transformation, uh, we see this world in a different place. Instead of depending so much on the constructs of, of politics to make changes um, that, that we do this day by day, uh, week by week. Um, you wrote some other powerful words um, in your writing with Christian Century. 
I know this seems kind of very stalkerish that I'm pulling quotes for you from like all over the place, but um, <laughs> you wrote, um, love sees injustice and refuses to remain silent. Love can be gentle and kind, but also calls a scene when necessary. Love clashes and confronts the powers and authorities that crush precious life, but don't get it twisted. It could be a dangerous love. Love is denigrated and downplayed, taunted and teased. Walls are built up. Bands are imposed to keep out love. Love seeks sanctuary and is undocumented since what it deemed very good is legislated as bad. Um, love seems to be the answer for you. Um, am I reading that correct? Yeah, I mean, because it's, it's not a, a sentimentality in terms of love, right? But it's action. It's embodied. It's the way of Jesus itself. Um, so if Jesus is the demonstration of what, of what love looks like, um, then the desire that God has for others and their well-being um, is going to be manifested into action. Um, and so I think, you know, love, not the sentimentality that often people will talk about when they mean love, but this kind of caring and about the well-being of others um, and, and God's desire for them, right, being driving us out into the public square to respond just like Jesus did to what was going on all around him in his society, um, that that is the kind of love that we need to get a glimpse of, to catch, to experience, to encounter, to be transformed by, and then to transform the, wa- the world by. What's, what's next for you? Um, I, I know that seems like a lot after, uh, you know, picking up this heavy topic and picking up this, um, this just brilliant book. Um, but what's on the horizon for you? Yeah. So, I mean, um, a lot of folks at the end of my book, I give some like broad general concrete practices that I think churches can engage in. Um, but, but I wanted to start thinking and writing about, um, a little bit more about what it looks like to do justice in our local communities as the church. Um, so that's kind of really what I've been doing some speaking around that and also some writing and thinking around that as well. And that is a lot of the work that I'm already doing in my own life. And so kind of drawing also from those experiences. And so I guess, you know, for me, I've been, a, I'm a bit disappointed sometimes in the, what I would call the, the political imagination of the church sometimes is so limited <laughs> um, that most people, they think about doing justice and all they can think of is running to the, to the ballot box. Um, and, you know, participating in the electoral cycle. Um, And I think that that's such a limited understanding of the ways that we can engage in doing justice and even bringing systemic change, that there's other options and avenues. I I want the church to think about what would it look like to do justice in the way of Jesus, given all the tools and options that we have, and especially in a democratic society, um, what 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 might how might we engage on the ground on a grassroots level in doing justice as the church right and taking seriously what that means to be the church and again expanding our political options beyond just the formal channels that are handed to us but also and i'm not knocking engaging and using those things but i but i think that there are a lot of other options available to us considering things like movements and local faith-rooted organizing and other things like that that we can really take seriously. And especially as the church, uh, we have such potential and possibility um, to be both a visible community that is embodying something different and working in a movement on the ground in our neighborhoods, um, making a difference for those, for our neighbors that are most vulnerable. 
Well, Drew, um, this is uh, this has been an absolute uh, honor to to speak with you. Uh, I'm a big fan of your work, um, and your writing helps inform um, so much of the way that I try to approach um, teaching on the Gospels. And uh, I'm I'm not just saying that your your words are powerful, and your theological um, arguments are, um, are are transformational. So thank you for your willingness to uh, to write. Thank you for your willingness to. Um, allow your work uh, to make an impact on the kingdom of God. Oh, thank you, Andy. So generous. I really appreciate that. Thank you. This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctor of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctor of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. Join us for the 2018 Pastor School, May 28th through the 30th, in partnership with Pittman Center of Congregational Enrichment. This year's guest speaker topics will focus on leadership and perilous times. For more information on the Divinity School and upcoming events, visit gardner-web.edu backslash divinity. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world. 